Hello, everyone. This is Artemis with the Uncivilized Podcast. Today, I have Jamie, also known as James V. Morgan. Jamie is a longtime anarchist, holds a graduate degree in anthropology, has worked professionally as an anthropologist for over a decade with different indigenous groups the world over, and is currently an avid practitioner of rewilding and self-reliance in the Alaskan bush. Jamie, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to say thanks for coming on. You know, the last couple of months, you and I have gotten to know each other, I think, pretty well. I consider you a good friend, and we've exchanged really great phone calls that go on for hours and hours. And I think, you know, those could have been entire podcast episodes themselves, but now we're we're finally doing it, man. And I'm excited. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Uh, let's hope we can make the podcast as exciting as some of those phone calls. Right, right. So I guess we'll jump right into it. Who is Jamie and what has led you from, you know, the typical average domesticated professional to a radical and ragged hunter in the Alaskan bush? Well, it actually didn't flow that way for me, the way you described. I I, I started out, um, well, I got, I got into the stuff I'm into now from punk rock, really, from, from being a punk rock kid in the city, getting really into hardcore music and all those politics, getting really into anarchist politics, um, and living kind of on the edge for quite a while. And I eventually ended up squatting some forest service land. I was always really into, into being in, in nature and being, having that sort of relationship. So I ended up squatting some forest service land as a way to not have to pay rent. And, um, well, simultaneously reading a lot of anarchist literature and uh, kind of discovered the green anarchy stuff. This is back late 90s and um, uh, then got really into anarcho-primitivism. And uh, at that point, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And I, I uh, ended up uh, getting a research assistant position uh, with an anthropology professor on a big project they were doing on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. And so that's what led me on this trajectory. I didn't uh, become a professional in anthropology and then become radical. I was actually quite radical before I started getting a real job in anthropology. And uh, I've done that. I did that for quite a while. Oh, maybe almost 20 years in and out. And uh, I've finally sort of given up on that because it it's just so destructive being a part of the machine uh, whether you're getting to study cool things or not so now i, I i'm back to uh rejecting the whole thing i mean i've always rejected it but i've basically hit a point where i'm like i'm done playing along with these people we can get more into that but anyways that hopefully that's this a good overview yeah. Would you be able to go into a bit of what your work as an anthropologist looked like, or is that a bit too too much to know? Yeah, on a general level, uh, getting paid as an anthropologist, a lot of uh, NGOs uh, and government agencies and tribes they actually they actually have a the need for for research on um, all kinds of different issues. Usually, it's associated with development projects or associated with uh, government regulations like legislative bodies will will uh you know make decisions about certain issues regarding uh uh wildlife or or native rights issues and then they always want new 
quote unquote anthropological data that they can use to make decisions. So you can get employed by becoming a researcher and get funding based on whatever you know big projects are happening. So a lot of funding does come from uh, development and extraction industry stuff. Um, and essentially you're investigating what the, the impacts would be to um, the indigenous communities to, to like a, a proposed mine or something like that. Um, and it's a big, it's, you know, it's a big mess. It's it, it, the, the dominant politics. You can guess what they are and, and they, they tend to win the day, right? Like there's a lot of political lip service to indigenous rights and, and, you know, stopping the wrongs that had happened and so on. But in the end, uh, the civilization and the whole, the whole psychology of it tends to, tends to win. So, um, you're kind of just, you're just kind of playing the game and getting a paycheck for it. It's not like you're doing this amazing radical thing that's making this huge difference. It's in fact, that's one reason why I had to quit because the harder you try to, to, um, to do something radical and actually like get big points across that people need to listen to, the more they'll marginalize you and alienate you. And it just gets to start. It just feels horrible, right? Like trying to navigate that every day and be, being the odd person out that essentially they just want to eliminate you. So. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I find that, I find that interesting because, you know, we've talked about this before, but I at one point wanted to be an anthropologist. And then I was like, I looked at it, I was like, damn, either I could be an underpaid professor or work for a government or corporations or NGOs and just do cost-benefit analysis, and that would be fucking miserable. Yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of paths you can take as an anthropologist, some better than others. Um, uh, but where mm -hmm. I'm at these days is that generally, it does, it's not even just anthropology. It's a, if, if you need to have a career within, within the system, then you're basically towing the whole thing along and um and you're stuck in in mm. that paradigm and it's just at least for me personally it's really unhealthy mentally and physically to continue on within it um so yeah you can i don't i don't not recommend people uh start if one they want to be an anthropologist an archaeologist i don't recommend them not doing that but just understand like what the consequences are if you're actually fighting for real change, you know, like it's a, it's kind of a go nowhere thing and the environment, um, meaning the colleagues and stuff, you know, the, most of them don't want to deal with anything that ruffles their feathers and makes them feel some cognitive dissonance for what they're doing. So, you know, it's, it's just the constant, um, that kind of constant bad feelings when you're trying to, you, Especially, that's the thing, okay, you would expect that anthropologists, people who actually are trained and to, to know better about uh, what the consequences of civilization are, yeah. you would think they'd be the ones who would be your allies, but generally not. Generally, they end up defending mm -hmm. the whole Leviathan more so than they will ever criticize it. And they feel threatened if it gets too critical because they're signed up for these careers and they, um, they know that, uh, you know, the career itself can't really go forward if they start to 
cross too many lines. And um, so. Right. It's all funding based, right? I mean, if you're if you're going to go against the system, which is the where all the, the money comes from, if you're going to start speaking, hey, maybe this is an exploitive system that's not good. And as long as it's more than just lip service, how are you going to get the funding that you need to do anything with your job? Yep. And you'll get marginalized really quick, too, uh, by all these people. And, and uh, you know, in the in the book I'm about to put out, which is, talks about some of this is I mean, I'm even talking about how, you know, the tribes, tribal governments will marginalize you. You won't be able to do any anthropological work if they find out that you're you're against development or being critical of, of decisions they're making that are like civilized decisions, you know, uh, uh, neo-colonial decisions that they're making themselves and, and tribal people, uh, that, um, uh, also are critical. They'll get marginalized from the powers that be within, within the indigenous groups. Right. So there's really, what happens is basically everyone just learns to keep their mouth shut because there, there's legitimate consequences. If you want to, if you want to like be successful in the system, uh, to, uh, to standing up against this whole thing that's, that's happening, you know, uh, and what happens is too, you know, people might start out, um, well, I'm going to be an anthropologist. It's so cool. Like I'm going to learn all this stuff about indigenous ways of life and cultures. And, and this is like the most radical like thing I could do if I'm going to have a degree or have a profession. And, and then, you know, you're really into it when you're in your twenties in college or whatever, but then you, you, you uh, graduate and you get offered the job and the job is going to pay pretty high. And then you're like, Whoa, I finally have money for the first time in my life. Oh my God. I'm going to buy a house. And then all of a sudden you have a mortgage. Uh, and then you end up, you know, having kids or something and, and, uh, and your partner is like not as radical as you were. So you just kind of like, you know, they, they want to live the suburban normal white picket fence life. And you just fall into that. Cause you're like, well, I will, you know, I used to be really into all this stuff, but it's too much for me to think about now. And I just got to go along with it and I'm making good money and I'm comfortable. So then they end up slowly but surely being defenders of the whole system uh, rather than people who actually wanted to continue to confront it. And, um, you know, it's all it's and, and I'm what are these people's politics? What is the general the normal politics of your average cultural anthropologist? It's just mainstream mainstream leftism. Right. So. um Right. Yeah. Can we can we kind of circle back? You're talking about the word. Is that something you want to get into a bit here or is that or is it something you want to leave off the table for now until it's out? Sure. We can talk about that. Yeah. So I guess primarily, you know, I've 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 looked at it. I've I've helped edit it a little bit. And what strikes me is as you're talking about these anthropologists who have totally bought into the system and in some ways they maybe think that they're not right because they see themselves as heroes they're doing the social justice politically correct thing and they think they're resisting the system but in reality they're at best controlled opposition right uh or at worst complicit in colonialism and development so can we talk about a bit of how that works within anthropology and how that connects to the the book that you're writing yeah i mean essentially uh the book that uh, i'm about to put out uh, i decided it was absolutely necessary to do it because i started noticing a bit of a trend uh, within anthropology of sort of critical theory 
analysis of the rewilding, primitivism, anti-civilization type of activist philosophy and um, their effort to put those ways of thinking into the category of cancelization within the whole woke sort of paradigm, right? And and that is what's mm-hmm. happening. Like, I mean, a major a major work from anthropology and archaeology that that um, helped initiate that uh, most recently was the Dawn of Everything, the Graeber and Wengrow book, where in the end, if you right. if you really look, look at that book, it's that book is a is is really a, effectively an attack on on a all anti civilizational anti agricultural thought. And they're trying to make it so mm-hmm. though if you if you're anti if you have anti-agricultural thoughts or anti-civilizational thoughts or you you think hunter-gatherers are cool, you you should be canceled because you you know you, essentially the, there's this other book that says it even more outright, um, which is called Back to the Stone Age by a guy called Ben Pitcher. And it's, it essentially says if you're in, if you're interested in prehistory at all as like some co- sort of uh, uh, pathway for understanding our contemporary crisis and um, confronting the crisis using anything to do with prehistory, you know, pre, what's that, pre-civilized human life, then you are effectively a racist. You're a racist and a fascist, effectively, just for being, just for citing prehistory at all, okay? Um, Mm -hmm. So then there's hunter-gatherer study specialists uh, who uh, I'm very I'm familiar with because I go to the conference uh, whenever they have it, the International Hunter Gatherer Studies Conference, and they they wrote a paper called "Rewild Your Inner Hunter Gatherer?" Question mark. You know, um, and that whole thing is a it's a it's going in it's going to be published in Current Anthropology, and it's a, it's basically a big attack critique of the of the the rewilding movement um now it's it's very naive uh these people really had no idea what kind of hornet's nest they were stepping into when they when they decided to do this critique some of it some of what they say is valid like they deal with the mainstream you know popular culture use of the paleolithic and hunter-gatherers for like you know, commercialized paleo diet type stuff and all kinds of stupid things, you know. Um, but they, but the thing is, whether they they did it out of ignorance or or on purpose, they um, they attempt to lump the category of rewilding into into that one single category and then present it so that it should be a subject to total cancelization, right? Um, like it kind of it's like mm-hmm. forbidden ground right. to um, even bring up these topics, and it's offensive to indigenous people, and on and on. I mean, it's a it's a long discussion here. But what I decided is that as an anthropologist, understanding, uh, I believe with extreme accuracy, what the anthropological record really tells us, uh, that there was no way I could allow this this these critiques to stand. Uh, someone has to do something about it, like within anthropology and, and say something because they are effectively trying to implant a political paradigm into the field of anthropology that actually doesn't have any backing 
like scientific backing from the anthropological record, right? And in my opinion, and I think it's even beyond my opinion, I, you know, I'd like to see someone uh, uh, go ahead and try to to um, uh, defeat this stance that I'm about to say. The anthropological record, looking at as a whole, wholeheartedly across the board, proves the general rewilding and anarcho-primitivist thesis. Okay? So the problem is that's what the anthropological record tells us. It actually tells us we should be anti-safe, right? We want to deal with this situation effectively. Right. right. That's what we should be. But the anthropological world, even though they're the ones whose research has given us that wisdom, you know, uh, that wisdom is too threatening to them and their careers and their institutions, right? And their, their bourgeois positions that they have. So uh, what is their response? Oh, we have to get rid of this. We can't allow this to be the interpretation of anthropology. We need to come up with this new sort of woke postmodern spin job. You know, that basically uh, says civilization is like, let's stop questioning it. You know, we just need to embrace it at this point, you know, like like that. And we need to we need to let uh, tribal people, any free indigenous people embrace it, too, at this point. Like, don't call them wild. Don't call them primitive. You know, God forbid um, you're hurting them by calling them that. And degrading them and i mean it, there's so much to be say about it but the point is the book the book is going to be a, a, sh a short it's a short book but it's going to be um a, sort of a primer to defend rewilding and primitivism against this trend that i've discovered within academia mm -hmm. i'm so i'm curious in your mind what is keeping anthropology whether it is professional anthropology or if it's quote unquote amateur, which I think carries a negative connotation, but maybe layman or, 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 you know, people that do it as a hobby, but what is keeping anthropology from its radical expression in the way that you go about it? Is it purely the fact that it's so reliant on funding or is it because there's like a deeper nature to it? Cause I'm sure some people could say, Oh, it's inherently colonial or because it's so rooted in colonialism that it tends towards colonial behavior. Or is it something different in your mind? It's all that, that you just said, but what is it fundamentally? It's, it's, it's domestication. It's human domestication. Mm -hmm. um, that's really what it is. Like fundamentally the psychological aspect of it is that, that is the psychology that, that all of these people are operating with and what is that that's a that's a physical a deeply almost unchangeable physical complete dependency on the entire global machine for your day-to-day -day existence and when you understand that then you're confronted with the choice do i want to get out from under the rungs of being dependent on this global system of power that I'm enslaved to so I can eat every day or I want to try to um, or not, or do I want to just go along with it? Is it just too much for me to deal with to try to, to try to confront that? Right. So 99.9% mm -hmm. .9 of the people when they're confronted with that, whether it's like subconsciously or directly 
in their right in front of their face, their decision is to instead toe the line for the machine to maintain their dependency on it rather than fight it. Right. And that's that's why anthropology doesn't do anything. That's why no one does anything or very few people do anything. But right. the thing is but the the thing is that anthropology is the most guilty of any of the academic categories because of all the categories the anthropologists especially those who study hunter gatherers should be the ones who understand the actual reality the cultural material reality of the situation right and that's why it's so bad they're actually committing the worst of the crimes amongst the academics right because right. they all of the literature says this is what the problem is like uh it tells you directly what the problem is but then the, those people try to somehow avoid it, right? Like, but they mm -hmm. should be the, they're the experts on this thing, but then they don't promote to the public what the actual real answer answer and reality is. This is why they're so corrupt. And uh, that's what keeps them from doing it. They, they, uh, they recognize, like, again, what I said is, whoa, well, if I actually deal with this, then um, I'm going to lose this job or I'm going to lose even maybe they won't lose the job, but they'll lose all their prestige. You know, they call it academic suicide. You know, um, the, the, all of a sudden, all these other people will critique them and they'll offend. And and today with how strict the politics are, the, you know, the political correctness is in campuses and stuff. You, you're walking on very shaky ground to say anything. Right. Um, so, again, that goes back to why is, why is there a movement now within anthropology to cancel rewilding and anti-civ, <laughs> right? Because it's mm -hmm. like they don't want to let that um, take off. They don't want that to take off with students because then they're going to have to deal with it and they're going to get back further into a wall and, like, somehow have to answer for it. And in the end, they can't actually answer for it adequately. So that's where that's where postmodernism, you know, is that, that, that tool of these people to try to, like, avoid dealing with with in-your-face material reality. And um, uh, uh, Daniel Bitten on his podcast, the What is Politics, uh, uh, he he's a cultural materialist, and he, he does a really good job of explaining um, how in academia, culture, uh, cultural materialism, uh, which I'll explain, uh, but how, how cultural materialism uh, has was was undermined by postmodernism um, when the when the realities of cultural materialist analysis became too threatening to the academic bourgeoisie, uh, postmodernism became the answer. That's the reaction, right? So, right. so cultural materialism is just the basic idea behind that is that uh, material conditions, meaning. Your basic needs, right? That's where you start, like food, clothes, shelter, water. Uh, however you're obtaining those basic needs is going to shape the way your culture evolves, your society, and you as an individual, your psychology, your perception of the world. And the, the, uh, the counter to that is, is idealism, um, which is that, no, 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 we can just create ideas we can just we can manifest things we can just envision it we can like change we can change people's minds and we don't it doesn't matter material conditions don't matter at all um but anthropology right. doesn't the, the record actually disproves that but the, but the thing is they continue to want to insist on that so postmodernism and anthropology became this reaction to like 
the the old hunter-gatherer studies that were very materialist, very like ecological materialism based. And then they were like, oh shit, like we got to like stop this because if this takes off, then it's going to mess up our whole position. And yeah, anyways, that's kind of the story. Gotcha. So continuing with anthropology, and we, we will eventually move to some of the some of your experiences, but this is really good and I think needs to be talked about. In the development of anthropology, obviously, John Zerzan's been talking about this for many, many, many years, and including others, but you have historic anthropology kind of just seeing indigenous, indigenous hunter-gatherers, indigenous, of course, meaning the world over, not particularly uh, indigenous people of North America, but what I'm meaning is, you know, this, it kind of keeps this, oh, they're ignorant, they're like children, they need to be civilized, but also the Hobbesian, short, nasty, brutish, right? But then you have Man the, the, Man the Hunter Symposium in 1966, if I remember correctly. Um, how, can you talk about how that overturned previous conceptions of hunter-gatherers, but also how has anthropology developed since then in its attitude towards and its and its understanding of hunter gatherer peoples. Yep. Uh, well, the man, the hunter. Yeah, fl it flipped that script, right? Like that was that was why it became so threatening because that was the, the overturning of those old views of nasty, brutish, short, and childish, and undeveloped, and and that sort of like a notion of being primitive, right? Um, mm -hmm. It was actually this thing of. That was a celebration of primitive life that that it was um, uh, extremely viable and it's how we how we lived for most of our history as a species and the people have lived really good lives and they actually lacked warfare they lacked uh, hierarchy they, they had gender egalitarianism um, they ate really well they had good nutrition and so on and so on and um, of course there's so many nuances to that. And, and depending on certain circumstances in this different parts of the world. But in, in a general way, it's true. And, and it's been proven to be true. Um, but of, from, from there, uh, from Man the Hunter, you know, there was, of course, all kinds of backlash from people who, who wanted to, who, right. who didn't want to accept that, you know. And they, then, so they, they would start finding every little nuanced thing that they could to try to disprove that. And I, I mean, yeah. It kind of right. went that way. The, it sort of began the debate that uh, it's not where it started, but that debate could be, um, uh, I guess, a general way to describe that debate would be to, to, to talk about what's called the Kalahari debate, um, which is right. the, the debate between two sides of anthropology archaeology, which you would, one side would be what would be called the primitivists. That doesn't mean the primitivists, just to just to qualify that, the primitivists in that debate are not necessarily like the anarcho-primitivists who are saying we all need to go live wild. They're but they're the print they're the they're the primitivists in anthropology who had sided with the idea that um uh that when you're seeing these especially these African immediate return hunter-gatherers, you're actually seeing the best example we have that we can ever get of of the actual homo sapiens uh uh ancestral adaptive evolutionary way of life and getting a picture mm -hmm. of what it would have been like and and also they're they're asserting that but they're also asserting 
the really positive aspects of that way of life. Again, what I just listed, you know, non-hierarchical, extremely egalitarian, egalitarian, um, uh, living very well, mm-hmm. so on. Um, so then the other side of the debate was the, these, these people who jumped in, which particularly this guy, Edwin Wilmson was leading that charge. And, um, if I may, if I remember his his camp, because you said that there's the primitivists who I also know are called like the traditionalists. Wil- Wilson's group is called the revisionists, right? Is that exactly. like the second camp? Basically, it's the traditionalists. Yeah, versus exactly. The yeah, good, good on you for knowing that. Yep. Okay. Uh, so the revisionists, they're basically the postmodernists. They're they're the they're the ones who love civilization right. and they want to they want to downplay everything for man the hunter, you know. Uh, Wilmson's thing was like the Son Bushmen, they're not primitive hunter gatherers that like are representing like eons of human time. No, they're just like the rejects from the uh pastoralist tribes who who um who didn't want to, you know, who couldn't get along with uh the pa- way pastoral way of life, like working. They they were like the the workers on for the for the Bantu pastoralists, and then they just like ran away because they didn't want to deal. So they're like modern homeless people who went and ran away to the desert, and um, you know they're just these marginal people, and it's not that significant, you know, kind of thing, and so on. Like, and there's no also what's the classic postmodernist thing? How can we really know? Uh, there's no real evidence that they're that they're from these ancient you know, uh, ancient ancestral populations and who knows, they could have come from anywhere and who, you know, who knows, they might've just invented hunting and gathering like, you know, 200 years ago, like kind of stuff, you know, um, that's, I'm not saying that's exactly how Wimson put it, but that's the general kind of messaging these people try to put out there. Right. And they try to confuse and muddle the situation. So then everyone, then to, for these people to academically protect themselves, they all have to be like, oh, well, maybe Wilmson has a point and we better not assert anything too radical now, lest we will get in a controversy and get in trouble uh, academically, you know? And then it sets off this whole postmodernist thing uh, within hunter-gatherer studies and then all these naysayers and this long, this Kalahari debate, right? And um, the thing is though, like, through time, uh, when I was at uh, one of the conferences, uh, uh, I forgot which one, either the last one or the one before a few years ago, uh, uh, a prominent, I won't mention names because I don't want to you know, mix people into all of our politics, but uh, a prominent hunter-gatherer right. studies anthropologist who's like well-renowned um, stood up in front of everyone and said, Look, let's face it, people. At this point, the, the traditionalists, the primitivists, have won the Kalahari debate. Okay, so not. I believe that's absolutely a fact. Uh, and then even genetically now, um, you know that. Yeah, I mean that's right. that gets a little bit. Of course, people argue about that too, but they're saying that um, genetically, and forgive me if I don't describe this exactly right, because I'm not a geneticist, but that the, the earliest sapiens split in genetically is represented by three groups. Those three groups are three main known African immediate return hunter-gatherers, pygmy populations, Hadza and San. And that's the earliest split in, the, in, in, in our species 
genetic uh, trajectory, right? That makes sense. So that means that those three groups have to, re they both, all three of them had to have come from the ancestral group. So how is it that all three of those groups share what, if there's one thing, what do they share? It's immediate return, uh, militant, uh, adamantly militant, uh, e egalitarian, or we could, we could just call that anarchist politics, right? They all, all three of those groups share that. And, they, mm -hmm. and that represents the earliest genetic split. Okay. So it's just another, a very powerful thing that people should be paying attention to. It, it speaks a lot to the idea that, uh, you know, we, we evolved, we probably evolved as anarchists. Like we couldn't even have speciated without this anarchist ethos, this ethos of not having, living in, in under dominance hierarchies. And, and um, of course, uh, that, that gets very complicated, but uh, uh, I'll mention, on that note, I'll mention too that I was reading John Gowdy's uh, new book. Ultra Social, right? Yeah. Ultra Social. Yep, and he, and he, in there he talks about that uh, some people might have retained this. He, he doesn't necessarily speak about it genetically, but uh, some people might have retained this ancient uh, tendency for rebellion against power and control. And other people uh, that have ancestry that fell more into line with like working, you know, uh, wage slave jobs and so on. Might it might have been zapped out of them, and that's why they're so willing to go along. But then there's also the, some of us who are like, we're not going along with this. We'll fight till the end, right? Well, who are those people? Generally, that's usually anarchists. And then who, who what ancient populations politic lines up the most with us? It's immediate return hunter gatherers in Africa and Southeast Asia yeah. and so on. So this is all really powerful, and um and uh uh yeah, I think is. We need to start these anthropologists that uh, and anyone who tries to naysay this stuff. I'm not saying they don't have good points at times because oftentimes they do bring up big, good points about how uh, people tend to romanticize and overblow some of right. this stuff. But at the same time, they, with where we are in the world, this crisis we're in, it's time for us to fight against these naysayers every step of the right. way. Because um, all they are in the end, are, these people are just civilizers. That's all they are. They want us all to, they want to urge us all, all into. Into, into becoming ultra-civilized. And they want to urge, really, ultimately, the remaining free indigenous people on the planet, they don't mention at all any idea of them staying free, like culturally, materially free. They don't... They, they If you probably back them into a wall on it, they, they'll find a way to, to weasel their way out of voicing support for actually independent hunter-gatherers existing anymore they, because they find it threatening. Yeah. Yep. I find, you know, I find it interesting, uh, and I have, I've had this with anthropologists, and I've had this with particularly leftist radicals, is when we talk about, we'll just say primitive living, uh, which can apply either to historic uh, immediate return or contemporary immediate return. Uh, what's funny is you'll talk about, you know, they have this aspect that's really positive, this aspect, and they're like, well, wow, you're just romanticizing. Look at all these other things. Like, they don't want to listen because they immediately jump to all the downsides. It's like, I'm not saying those don't exist, but, like, why aren't, you know, it's funny is when you talk about, like, for anarchists, right, let's talk about left-wing anarchists, you talk about their historic horrible things that anarchists have done, like, 
And I know they love to deny it. It's like, well, you know, in Spain, they weren't really prisons. They were, you know, they were different. Like they were so willing to make excuses, overlook, or just lie about their own political experiments. And sure, and I understand a lot of primitivists do engage in noble savage like glorification. And I get that should be combated. But the automatic response to us talking about that these people have more fulfilling, healthy lives than us, the automatic response shouldn't be, yeah, well, what about X, Y, Z? You know what I mean? Because it shows me that they're not willing to actually engage. They just want to plant something else down on it and then just walk away. You know what I mean? Because they have the cognitive dissonance going on that they realize if they want to be, if they want to have a proper I shouldn't say proper, if they want an authentic anarchist society, it means being uncomfortable with, you know, being being more radical than they really are, because they're really not. All they are is just uber Democrats, if you really think about it. At least in North America, I can't speak to anarchists in other places. Just my experience here is that a lot of them are just radical Democrats in this in the sense of like democracy, not the Democratic Party, I should clarify. But you know what? I'm sure you've had that. It's like, well, you know, what about this issue or this issue? And they just get down, they like narrow it down to like the lowest common denominator. It's like, yeah, those are issues, but it's like every society has issues. And this idea that everything's going to be utopic and beautiful and perfect because you're going to make it that way is just, it's ignorant and it's cowardly. I don't know. Do you find that with, with anthropologists too? Mm, well, I mean, I'm not sure I completely follow everything how, how you put it but uh uh it, it goes back to what i said when you asked me well why why do anthropologists end up in in these positions well i said ultimately it's because of their domestication well that's that could be the same answer for for all these people trying to weasel their way out of these anthropological realities uh right uh, uh all these political actors right um it's pretty simple the math on this is pretty dang simple you know, um, you have basic needs autonomy uh, in in a bioregion, uh, then you actually have liberty. And, and not only that, you, you, you not only have like actual authentic autonomy and freedom, you also are cultivating optimal human well-being in respect to uh, not just physical and mental health, but social health and so on. And... So this is I'm a I'm a militant cultural materialist, all right, and and mm -hmm. I'm I'm there I'm at that point because that's what I understand by studying the anthropological record so thoroughly, and right. um, you know I I I would like to see people try to argue their way out of that and and see what they come up with, but um, when you take it to that level, what you understand is is that um, well, first of all, the reality is all these these ideas that these people have, um, you know, all the power to them bless their hearts you know they're they really are trying to a lot of them are really are trying to 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 create something positive in this freaking mess that we're in you know that they, they are trying but but the thing is is that uh whatever they come up with is is if it doesn't completely uh, fail in terms of like systemic collapse down the road it will if even if these models continue are able to be viable for a thousand years or more or whatever, they're still not going to be optimal human conditions. They're going right. to suck. They're not that's not where you want to live. You're if you want if you're an anarchist and you want to live outside of a dominance hierarchy, then you don't want to join this stuff. You know, and is that really what you want for yourself? Then well, go ahead, then do it. All the power to you. But but uh, there are opportunities uh, to. To cultivate uh, something that can viably 
get us out of this mess. When I say us, it doesn't mean 8 billion people. Um, it means the select people who are willing to make these these moves towards this actual like, material radicalism. And uh, the, as this whole evolutionary trajectory unfolds now um, with the impending doom of this mass civilization, right? I firmly believe that those people who are willing to make these more these extremely radical materialist moves, uh, uh, which we can get into, will they will be forging the way for like new generations of actual like healthy viable human populations on a small scale in, in specific regions of the world. Now that might be romanticized too, because maybe because of climate change and how bad it all is, nothing is possible. But thing is, kind of on Jay Z sort of thing of why hope. Uh, I don't just throw in the towel and be pessimistic like, oh, the world's over, fuck it. You know, um, I'm, I, I believe that if there is possibilities, it's going to be within the most radical, small-scale, remote communities who forge this path and start to find small and large ways to shed their domestication. And then that will lead us, lead some people somewhere that's, that's positive and, and actually adaptive and healthy. Other than that, then the rest of it's just a, like, I, I'm tired of arguing with them actually, you know, like some of them will just never be convinced and just let them go along, go, let them go on with it, you know, see what they can pull out. Right. Right. So I'm, I should say, and then we'll move on. What I was trying to say earlier is that a lot of leftists, uh, they aren't willing to acknowledge the, I should I just say the benefits. I'm not trying to make an ideology out of it, but the 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 bright side, the benefits of hunter gatherer life. Their automatic response isn't to acknowledge and appreciate that. It's just to deride it. It's to or not to deride it, but to 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 criticize. It's well, well, what about you know modern medicine or what about transport or what about art? You know what I mean? Like they are not willing. Their automatic response to any of the goodness we talk about is to just assume that we are making a caricature. And to make all the negatives apparent because they're not willing to to deeply engage with it is what I was trying to say earlier. Yeah, yeah. So you know what? Uh, I think there's just it's probably like deep inside of the human soul that reactivity to that because mm-hmm. regardless of what their knowledge is, the mere notion of 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 going wild, going primitive, like unchaining yourself from the machine, not being independent on it, you know. Uh, being in that uncomfortable position in nature where everything is uh, definitely hard, um, they they the gut reaction when someone uh, promotes that idea is 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 to uh, attack, you know, to fight back, like uh, to 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 down downplay it. And I think that's normal for for a lot of people, you know, like that's the reaction you can expect when you bring primitivism up in these circles for you know. And so it's just because it's, it's freaking scary. It's really scary. And again, that's, this goes back to why I said academics take, they choose postmodernism as their theory because it's a gut reaction, right? A gut reaction to the, to, Oh my God, I don't want to be wild. Oh my God. I don't want to be actually free, you know? Um, and right. so they want to, and this domestication is a disease. It's like a fucking mental disorder. Right. Right. So we've been talking about the, this idea of uh, the immediate return hunter gatherer. For those that are maybe not as familiar with that terminology, what other people tend to say, 
uh, though I, I, from my understanding, it's a bit less common now, is the term like simple hunter-gatherer cultures that are hunter-gatherer groups. And then you have like uh, delayed return, which tends to correlate with the idea of like complex hunter-gatherer groups. Are you able to break down, I feel like people might be able to tell what it means, but can you break down substantially? What is the difference in how they manage their food? And what is the long-term impact of the way they organize? Does it lead to stratification or, or is that just simply the difference is one stores food and the other does not? What is it substantially, what substantially differentiates these two groups? Yeah. Okay. I hope you're ready for a long answer on all that. Uh, hmm. let's, let's try to unpack it. Um, yeah, it's really important actually, because here I am, I'm promoting immediate return and, um, and we should, we should describe that and we should, we should get into the nuances on that. Um, yeah, it's, this is vital stuff. Uh, the, the, the distinction between immediate return and delayed return, um, <clears throat> that was, a that was brought out, um, put forward by James Woodburn. I believe in 1982 is when he came up with that, or at least that was the first paper on it. Could be wrong, but some sometime around there. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, immediate return is essentially, you know, you're 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 really just living in the moment. Um, you're 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 foraging day to day. You're getting your basic needs met um, on a daily basis, and you're not necessarily planning ahead. Um, you just you're in an environment where that's possible. Um, well, what should we do today? Let's. What do you want to eat? And we'll go over there, and and we'll get this, or, you know, uh, and 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 if they get something, uh, something substantial, of course they'll bring some back, and it'll last for a few days. But no one is like logistically storing uh, an excess of surplus food or other goods uh, to, to right. use for. Um, the particular, this is where it differentiates, really, because we'll, we'll get into delayed return, but this is where I've come to come to uh, define it myself now, because I believe that the way that anthropology has discussed it uh, still needs work, right? And when Woodburn first proposed it, um, it, it we need to modify those original, uh, the original uh, definitions in a way. Now, um, mm -hmm. so to be clear... Um I had to look it up because I think you'd sent me this piece. Am I wrong to say uh, this is his 1982 piece called Egalitarian Societies, or is this a different Yeah, that one? should be the one. And there, there, he might have put it forward earlier than that, but that's the classic paper. And uh, okay. every a, a, any one of these people listening who claims to be an anarchist, uh, you should read that paper. Um, plus mm -hmm. some, about 20 dozen other papers I could tell you you have to read, but... <laughs> In the course of our phone calls, the amount of things I've written down that you've told me, hey, you got to read this, you got to listen to this. Like, Holy shit. <laughs> it's who knew, who knew that there's a lot to read about? Surprise. I mean, you could say that paper actually describes, effectively describes what an anarchist society is and what a non-anarchist society is like very clearly. So have a look. Mm -hmm. But right. um, where I'm at mm -hmm. is this, is that uh, when, when you start to... Uh, take when you when you when you end up with a substantial amount of harvest of whatever it is or you know what doesn't even have to be a wild harvested thing just think about it period like some sort of goods and you're stockpiling that not for the purposes of survival of just like okay like uh you know i if i have if i get this deer it'll last me a week and i can eat for a week and not have to do anything else to me that's still immediate return but when you you get the deer 
And then you're like, okay, like I'm going to take this leg and maybe this back strap. And then you, I, those people down the road, uh, it's not like I'm going to share it with these people down the road. They, they have this thing that I want. And um, you know what? Maybe I could go down there and sell them this back strap or, or, right, or sell them this leg. This is where delayed return kicks in, right? Like you start to use your surplus to economize. And specifically, you start to use your surplus to create power. You start to use your surplus to create hierarchy, uh, status, prestige, you to, to rise above. And one of the terms in, in anthropology is called to become the aggrandizer or the aggrandizing agent. Okay. And so uh, the aggrandizing agent is the person who really initiates. It could be like a per, an individual or a family, right? They initiate what's called trans-egalitarianism where where uh, the group starts to shift away from that original egalitarian anarchist-like uh, positioning and starts to shift towards hierarchy. And that starts with the use of these, of these goods, uh, whatever they are, for, to create power, status, prestige, and wealth. And uh, so immediate return people, they don't use what they have to create power. You know, they might trade a little bit and do a little bit. Of, you know, it's not like completely no trading. And they, they might have a little. I mean, they, have, they obviously, they have relationships with outside groups. But the trade, right, from my understanding, and this is my background as an anthropologist, is some of the trade is more like it's, it's, it's almost kind of tends to depend on like, I should say, when they're not engaged with quote-unquote, more advanced or complex groups because that becomes different. But when they're trading or working with other hunter-gatherer groups, it tends to be things of aesthetics or art or ritual that it is like, oh, I'm trading you this this fucking cow for that. You know what I mean? They're not doing this true bartering system, I guess. A yeah, that's a good way to put system. it. I mean, we could get we could get in the weeds on all that because, again, yeah, there's a lot of nuances like – on these on immediate return hunter gatherers and and how they do you know have sort of an economy and they do have some trading and they have these different rules and stuff like that but but really what we should, let's let's get into the delayed return side because that's really where the this is the real yeah the real uh mechanism for creating civilization uh right so what what happens is certain groups you have to realize hunter gatherers created civilization that's one thing that you know some people mm -hmm. don't want to deal with either, but that is entirely a fact. Indigenous hunter gatherers created civilization, right? Uh, and they're but they're delayed return people, right? So they, these are people that somehow down the road allowed these aggrandizing agents to to sort of uh, their agenda to sort of take off, and uh, you know maybe people didn't even they didn't realize how that was going to evolve. It could have been just a simple thing, you know, where where there was like a potlatch ceremony, which is, I mean, that's something that we could get into, but like where, you know, the, the, the powerful hunter got all this meat and came back and, and, uh, distributed it to all the people. And then that, that, that hunter, that amazing, uh, hunter developed all this status. Right. And, uh, so they started looking to that person mm -hmm. as a leader, that person became like, slowly but surely that person or their family became the controller of like the game meat coming in. Like he was the redistributor, the redistributive chief uh, is, is uh, Marvin Harris's term for it. And uh, 
uh, so then that this yeah. is kind of how this stuff kind of slowly takes off, right? And Native America was riddled with this kind of stuff. As well, there's very it's really hard to find uh, historically known uh, Native Americans that aren't don't have some level of hierarchy like this that evolved right at that at that basic level. Um, so this is where you start right. getting to delayed return. Um, now, uh, people will say uh, that look, every single environment. Um, uh, that that isn't like this African environment where you can live delayed return, where you can just live day to day on wild food and not have to plan ahead. Um, uh, is the only those environments are the only environments possible for something like immediate return? Because when you get start getting further north in temperate and northern environments, you have to store food to make it for the winter. So inevitably, you have a surplus. Okay. My argument is is that we have political agency. You, we do not. We we don't have to uh, use what we have uh, to turn it into power. We don't have to do that just because we have an excess. Doesn't mean it has to become power into hierarchy. We, as political agents, as anarchist right. political agents, we need to we need to block that every time we see it arising in our communities, and say, no, nah, not happening. Right. And we, and we do see that because I was just, you know, I, I just recorded two days ago with Jessica Kraft and we talked about it. And now I'm blanking on the term. You'll know what I'm talking about, where many hunter-gatherer groups, you bring the meat back and they shame you and they, they tease you for it. I'm forgetting what the the counter-dominance Yeah, counter-dominance. You're, you're nailing like it. That. Also, just basic leveling mechanisms. Um, yeah, the leveling. This idea of, you know, you, you don't allow someone to to rise above right and this idea that that's oh that just passive it's not a political i say political in a general sense it's not they they are doing it intentionally to protect their way of life and when they ask them about that they are explicit because we're like we don't want him this this young man to think we're inferior to him what is that that's anarchism that's yeah. protecting their anarchic way of life so it's not some passive weird thing that's intentional as you say they are political agents yeah and and they've been they're political agents, and it's essentially proven at this point that they've been operating that politic for thousands of years, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, if you get into all the evolutionary theory on this. Mm-hmm. And, and um, the way to, and this is specific to the African hunter-gatherers. This is why we know we don't have to uh, turn surplus into power because they provide the evidence that you don't have to. And um, one thing that's been said about them is that uh, when you, you mentioned the word simple, which we can get into, um, in this, it, politically, they're not simple, okay? Uh, they're not political simpletons. They're not just these lazy people laying around that have no knowledge or wisdom of how things work. They're, they, keenly, they are keenly aware of how power evolves and hierarchy evolves, and they, ha- they have developed over these thousands of years this really strong political ethos, this really strong operating politic that is based on that one thing, which is never allowing hierarchy to arise. And they diligently day to day, hour to hour to minute to minute block it from ever happening because we all have in us as, as, as primates. Okay. Uh, This gets into the evolutionary theory stuff, but we all have it in us to have these egos. We all have some level of narcissism in us, uh, uh, and we have this capacity to turn to start trying to be dominant, or to to assert our egos, or try to have more. 
and they, they're very keenly aware of this. And and uh, what they what they've developed is these these uh, group level capacities to just say like, no, fuck you, you're going nowhere in this group if you're trying to run the show. Uh, you, we're going to get rid of you. Uh, or the first step is in leveling is just to make fun of them. Often the women are the ones who make fun of them. Like the, when the, the, the alpha male, the wannabe emerging alpha male shows up acting all tough and smart and, and thinking that they're like the, the, the cream of the crop, the women will make fun of them. You know, that's just one mechanism. And then, yeah, like uh, the other ones, famous ones are like how they share that they, they gamble for the arrows and so, and and then each arrow maker has their own um, mark on the arrow. And so, then, but the other other hunters end up with the with other people's arrows. But then, whoever uh, the big animal gets killed, and then uh, the person who shot the arrow doesn't own the animal. It's the it's the other hunter whose arrow it was, which could be like three bands away. You know, like right that person can't claim ownership, and so on and so on. Um, right. Like, uh, and I, so there's this, oh, I'm sorry, go on. Well, this is a important story on that. Just one, not to overemphasize the leveling, but that, there's an article, uh, uh, by, on Bayaka elephant hunting that I read recently. That's so good. And, and it, the story is about this one elephant hunter, this, this guy who, who, uh, he kept killing elephants and he was really good at it and it got to his head and, um, people got really annoyed. Like they're like, you're killing too many elephants. You're, you're hunting too much. Know, like and he was trying to use it for prestige and power and 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 to get females and stuff and um finally they had enough and he came back and he when he would ki- they kill the elephants the women the women go and then butcher it so they'll come back to camp and say I got an elephant and and uh then the whole group including all the women will go and start cutting it up it's like a huge animal right uh and if if we, we we may have very well evolved heavily as a species on eating elephants, okay? That's another thing uh, that we can get into on diet stuff. But um, this, so the point in what I'm about to tell you could have went back, could have went back like as part of our speciation. But uh, the story goes that they they finally had enough of this 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 egotistical hunter and the women when he came back that time, the women in the group said, "You know what? Fuck you." we don't want your elephant and the women refused to go cut it and the whole elephant just rotted and they got rid of that person. That person got sent, you know, they basically abandoned that, 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 uh, that want to be aggrandizing agent. They just got rid of them and they, they let the elephant rot. Right. But that was the political power, right? It's like, no, you've, you've like, you've ruined everything with your attitude and your ego your politics and we're just going to let the elephant rot we don't even want to touch it it's like bad juju to even touch your elephant now so i mean that's that's really interesting i'm going to read one thing and then i'm going to move on to something that that before i lose it it's a really important point i just read this in the interview i did with with jessica but it reminds me again so this is about richard lee when he was with a uh a hunter gatherer group says, when Lee asked one of the elders of the group about this practice, which is called counter-dominance, the response he received was the following, quote, When a young man kills much meat, he comes to think of himself as a big man, and he thinks of the rest of us as his inferiors. We cannot accept this. We can't review—we we refuse one who boasts, for someday his pride will make him kill somebody, so we always speak of his meat as worthless. In this way, we cool his heart and make him gentle, right? Like, how is that not, like, an anarchist practice, you oh, know? Yeah. This idea of not letting someone to control you. Yeah, and that's that's a very uh, 
famous quote. It's often cited, and and it it does uh, it, it's it summarizes exactly what the deal is there, and it, and um, uh, it's vital. In fact, it's pro. The evolutionary theory on this is that we could not have evolved without developing that ethos at some point. We could not even have become human right. uh, without that. Um, you know. Right. And what's interesting is you sent me a couple, probably a month or two now, definitely two months ago, the piece on, I think it was a rectus eating elephant, hunting elephant. So it's interesting to think of how many times has this played over in history that, because, you know, Zerzan is like, he answers the question, well, why didn't we develop agriculture for, for you know, earlier? Because the idea is like, well, if we were just as intelligent, which anthropology seems to believe is that we, our ancestors, either early homo sapiens or even before, were just as intelligent as us. It's like, well, why didn't they make agriculture? Isn't that just the idea? It's like, well, weren't they actively resisting it? So how many times in a story like yours, you just talked about, go back, maybe go back as far as homo erectus, you know? Well, yeah, that's why I mentioned the we might have been eating elephants as part of our speciation, like one of our major food sources. So if that, if that, if that elephant share the sharing of that elephant, that large animal that has so many, uh, social and political consequences. Right. And, uh, yeah. so if that, if that sort of story about the, the one I was telling you was something that was occurring, um, for all that time, I mean, maybe going back a few million years, or you know, at least a million years, right? Um, uh, with where where the women uh, never allowed the this one the one of the males to become uh, the hierarchical status driven hunter, right? Then that means that that counter dominance is being being practiced uh, forever, and um, and if, if you right. the the best author on on a lot of that is uh, Christopher Bohm. Um, book called Hierarchy in the Forest, and uh, and, and and his theory is is that uh, we could not have speciated without uh, without uh, operationalizing this counter dominance because uh, all if yeah. if you believe in evolution and you believe that we that we evolved from great apes or 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 diverged from from the same ancestor that the great apes evolved to now, uh, you have to separate us from great apes. And all great apes have these sort of hierarchies. They have these 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 uh, alpha males that run the show and do- and are dominant. You know, so for us to speciate, how do we get out of that? How do we not go down that path, right? So, um, right. That that's a long story. It could be its whole podcast, but um, right. Yeah, I mean, that's actually what I was going to talk about next. Is you're talking about the role of women in particular about regulating the attitude of men. Right. Because there's the whole, you know, we talked about hunter gatherers as egalitarian. And I do think there's been a bit of evidence back and forth. But when people think egalitarian, they tend to jump to gender, which is fair. Uh, but there is the idea or the the controversy of, well, you talked about removing specialization and power. But, you know, men do most of the hunting and women, while they're, they are able to hunt, tend to not. It's secondary to their foraging right and and other things so that being there how does that relate to what we've talked about before and what the rad the radical anthropology group have talked about with this idea of self-domestication and like the women in the sex strike because as you've talked about it with political agency women are theoretically 
like the drivers of humanity pushing us towards what makes us distinctly human from away from the other great apes. Can you kind of get into that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not the best expert on it. Um, and I would refer people to, uh, the, uh, radical anthropology group and, and, and all of their writing and lectures to, to really grasp this best. Um, before I try to explain that, I needed, I wanted to remind you, uh, we didn't talk about complex hunter gatherers when you asked that other question. So we got to do that. But, uh, right, right. uh, that connects to this in a way. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the basic theory is that again, if, 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 if great apes, if our great ape ancestor, our, that last divergent ancestor, uh, behaved like great apes do now, uh, and where, uh, you, you have a dominant males who, uh, do mostly all the breeding, uh, they kill if 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 the females have offspring with other lesser status males, they'll they'll tend to like go murder those babies and then and then take the female and uh, do what it wants with that female. Uh, they don't share food. Uh, Childcare uh, is generally done only by one female, one baby. Um, the, the females are really protective of their babies. And the females have to do all of the provisioning of those babies. Um, there's very little sharing in those in those groups. Um, so and and people, you'll when you start talking about this, you'll get the people say, "Oh, what about bonobos and all this?" Um, I'm not going to get into those details, but but that that uh, that story is all falling apart now too. Um, uh, so you, you're in this position, uh, as a primate, as a, as a social primate, but living in basically total dominance hierarchy from, from the alpha, these alphas, right? How does that change? How does it change? Well, the idea, the, the main idea there is that there, there's a female revolution. There's a, a, a coalition of females that form that re, re, rebel together against, uh, that dominant male. And, and, um, this the animal foods start to have a the the beginning of eating animal foods are probably a, the major uh, reason why all this started um because what happens is th that nutrition is so powerful uh uh it's so powerful for the evolving human brain okay um and once 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 peop once the, the our ancestral ape species got a taste of that then it feedback looped into this this desire to have these animal foods all the time and the, and and then especially the mothers they wanted to have the these these growing babies uh, obtaining those foods so that the the mothers uh developed their coalition and they they it's called sex strike theory they they uh blocked the uh, the alphas from having sex from being able to procreate and they allowed the uh, lesser status males to breed for their cooperation in provisioning the females with this high uh, dense nutrient animal food, particularly animal fat, bone marrow. Uh, and from there, uh, this triggered human evolution, and it's it's a female-driven thing. Um, if the mm -hmm. they the females convinced the males to become cooperative hunters. And the alphas were said, were told, uh, look, you either become cooperative or, or you're out of here. Like, we're all going to gang up on you and kill you and or get rid of you. 
And so this triggered human evolution. This mm-hmm. triggered triggered our speciation as egalitarian and gender egalitarian, with the 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 male group of cooperative hunters being the proficieners for the for the for the females babies. And the thing is, is that um the females it's really hard to take care of these growing humans. You know, humans are uh like how do they put it like uh they're actually not fully developed when they're when they come out of the womb you know they're so they, they need to be protect very we're extremely i mean something that differentiates us right is our like high level of like neo is it neotenic like neotenic traits right like yeah. we are so we have such a long developmental phase compared to even our uh our closest living ancestors, the chimps, right? So, I mean, yeah, it's a high, high energy input, a high time commitment, right? Yep. So you can't, the, people want to get all intense about the gender politics on this, but you cannot effectively create a human without that provisioning. Uh, the, the females can't take simultaneously obtain that level of animal dense nutrient food uh, that's required for, for, for the encephalization of the human brain. Uh, Mm-hmm. and simultaneously take care of those children right so the the females and the grandparents are taking care of those children uh, in camps and doing foraging around the camps for other food and then the men are cooperating and bringing back this really de- animal dense nutrient food and that that's triggering the evolution to the human species and it's all based on asking those just as a just as a quick pushback, someone could express is, well, you know, obviously childcare is communal, right? So why can't in theory, a non-pregnant mother or excuse me, non-pregnant woman, or even one who is, you know, given birth already, but is recovered engage in hunting in some sense, if if she isn't having to direct. Sure. Yeah. I'm sure that happened. I wouldn't, I'm, I'm speaking on a general level. Mm -hmm. That's, that's like adding a new nuance to it. You know, um, I'm sure Sure. that happened. Right. Absolutely uh that we can get into all that too like you know the backlash i mean and and also backlash against man the hunter uh instead the woman the hunter woman the gatherer this is all these controversies in anthropology but us i mean i also think about the fact that i mean while hunt while child care is communal it's also prolonged right the child is kept to the mother much longer Right, just generally yep. speaking. So there is much more of a time. There's more of a time commitment to children then than there is now. Not because, oh, it's vulnerable, but because you need that emotional bond. I mean, the reason there's more and more like depressants in children, you can argue, is like does they don't have that relationship with their parents, right? Particularly breastfeeding early on, like how important that is. Like breastfeeding, you might know this better than I do, but breastfeeding goes significantly longer in hunter-gatherer groups than it does even in like agricultural groups, right? Like pro much like four or five years old. Uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, what you're talking about there, which is what I didn't, I I didn't, I didn't continue. I was going to continue with was that, that uh, when I mentioned that, among the apes the females they don't share childcare. they it's basically one one female one baby just always together always taking care of that one baby but alloparenting is the human uh arrangement and so it's always it's the women are doing the women and the grandparents are doing cooperative child care right so that's a really important aspect yeah yeah, I think it's like I remember reading in the past that like 
the inf- like the I'll say infants, toddlers, young children, the ratio between caregivers to them is something like 10 to 1, which is insane to think about, by the way, that you can have that many. Like that's literally it takes a village, yep. right? To raise a child that way. And to be raised with all those possible like influences leads to a more holistic personality, right? I mean, if you're being raised by consistently not like oh let's go visit grandma for the day right but like consistently being raised by by five to ten people like that's there are so many positives to that yeah i mean it's we should just refer people to uh all the other work that's been because there's a a prolific amount of of work that's been done on this aspect you know how much healthier mentally healthier socially healthier are these children that are raised in these in these small scale hunter gatherer societies versus versus other ways of human life, right? And um, so uh, yeah, the, the book Mothers and Others by Sarah Hardy is I uh, that's another one I say is mandatory reading for anarchists. Um, Darsha Narvaez, mm-hmm. uh, all of her work should be read uh, by all parents. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's trying to raise children, yeah. Uh, and then again, all the rag, the, the rag theory on all this stuff should should be read by basically anyone who claims to be an anarchist too, and especially people interested in gender issues. Um, one thing I won't even get into it all because it's yeah. not. It's I'll, I'll let women speak for it, but uh, the uh, the lot of their whole theory has a, it has a huge amount to do with menstruation. And the power of menstruation, and so that um, mm-hmm. that's also something that everyone needs to be looking into. Yeah, I mean, and in, on the last note about this, and then we can move on to the complex hunter gatherers. If you think we're done, is I, I had to look this up because I didn't want to speak incorrectly, but I was I was I was thinking correctly that childcare is actually often done not only by like the grandparents and you know maybe the aunts and the uncles if they're not hunting whatever. It's the older the older. Uh, the child, the other children in the camp, which is interesting to think about. The still pre, the the ad, pre adolescent, you know, older than an infant is usually taking care of the kids. Like the kids are engaged in; they're not passive. They're not sitting around. They're treated like adults, which is interesting. Which again is giving them a, giving them a sense of agency and purpose. Well, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yep, and that is one of the whole, one thing that's discussed is like the mo- uh, the the uh the the diverse age of all the different caregivers to the younger children and yep the teen the teen children are taking care of the babies all the time and they're 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 in active play groups together and so on and it it cultivates this really healthy uh uh real like a huge amount of social and emotional intelligence you know and then and then on the self-reliance yeah like uh i was on john's show i called in there uh the other night uh to discuss a uh, spending some time with the Hatsa, and I, I, the part where uh, it ended for me was when I st- I started talking about the uh, about an eight or ten year old boy who was uh, cooking a monkey head on the fire by himself and uh, uh, breaking it once it was roasted up broke it, broke it apart with a rock and ate all the brains and the eyeballs and all the meat and everything right off the head and the point I was trying to make there. Uh, because John ended the show after that, or he ended my uh, time on era after that, was that I was trying to make that point you're just making about the level of self-reliance and ability for self-care that these really young children have in those cultures. They're they're raised 
they're raised to, from the start to, to recognize uh, the, the importance of being self-reliant and, and being able to defend for oneself as part of the group. And that, that, creates, a, that creates a really high level of, of uh, emotional and social intelligence as well. I mean, just think how different that is from the iPad generation, so to speak. You know what I mean when I say that, the iPad generation? Well, I, not exactly, but I get it. Uh, no, when you're, when, I mean, if you're in a restaurant, I'm sure any, most listeners, you walk into a restaurant, what are the kids doing 99% of the time? Are they coloring anymore? Are they talking to their friend, to their friends or family? No, they have a fucking iPad in front of them or a phone playing a game with earbuds in. And sure, someone's going to say, well, maybe the child has autism and they, it helps them regulate. Okay, sure. But 99% of the fucking time, it's because the parents don't want a parent. And we can get into that. I'm not judging the parents so much because I understand working full-time, multiple jobs, right? It's a lot, right? And so it's a larger systemic issue. It's not just the parents are bad. I'm not saying that at all. It's a larger thing of like being overworked, childcare is expensive, right? It's a whole lot of things that interconnect. But like think about the difference because I, you know, I'm open. I'm a teacher. I teach high school. I see kids, particularly it's more so among the underclassmen than the upperclassmen. I mean, the stark difference even. But like just just seeing how those kids are, like social and emotionally, is just it's it's really disheartening because like when I asked a lot of them, it's like, what do you do for fun? Oh, I watch TikTok. It's like, oh fuck. <laughs> you know? Uh, absolutely. I mean, this is it. Back to the whole this this is this is how deeply embedded uh uh most of our species is now in 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 the machine that controls our lives and and yeah you know you can blame those parents individually for sure but but really yeah it is that deeper systemic issue like these people are all all of us are running on this hamster wheel and we have barely any time left anymore and um yeah and the, the phones and all that and the internet is 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 actually the major uh, component of all that now because people think it's so wonderful but all it does is just suck up more of your time you know you're yes. going you know, another text message you have to reply to and of course you can't pay attention to your kids here you hand your kids a phone so they can just start text messaging too while you return all your text messages and uh you know i mean it's just the 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 feedback loop on this is just psychotic it's absolutely psychotic and that, and that gets into the whole the whole thing of oh well it's optional it's voluntary like and we were talking about this before we reported like two hours ago, uh, this idea that like, oh, it's voluntary. Yeah, but more and more jobs require it. But also it's just social. I mean, the social pressure pressures, the soft power, the social cues, right? The demands of what it means to be a citizen and to be engaged. It's like it's not optional. And it's, yeah. I'm so fucking tired of hearing that. How about uh, all these these uh, mainstream run of the mill leftists want to talk about uh anti-fascism well what's mm -hmm. what's one of the most fascist things there is it's it's the it's the fascistic dominance of all this technology over our lives you know? the, total, the totalitarianism of all i mean it's a totality right. that you can't escape but it's it's unquestionable and that just the fact is that leftists and capitalists i'm writing about this have the same opinions on it oh it's neutral or even worse it's inherently good progress is inherently good all that matters is how you apply it the u.s government and nato and all these other countries have the same opinion like i mean at least in words like even the capitalists 
to serve their profit, right? And there's the short term versus the long term. But they know it's like, well, what do they argue? Well, we're not going to replace all jobs. We're making more jobs. You know, and just as the leftists say, well, when we get control of it, we're not going to dehumanize you. It'll rehumanize you. It'll give you the chance to make you a better person, to make culture better. I mean, fundamentally, it's all it comes down to is who has control of it, which doesn't actually change the outcome. Yeah. But now I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting uh, upset now. No, you, <laughs> I'm glad you're saying it. There is no actual choice. I mean, there is. But uh, I, I can speak personally to it that. Uh, if, cause I, I refuse to have a smartphone. Um, I, I try to spend as little a time on the internet as I can, as I have to. Um, and if I wasn't a parent, I, but, uh, because I'm a parent means I have to be online. And that's like, uh, if I'm not online, then, um, not to get into all, all those details, but if I'm not accessible online, then they'll take my parental rights. And, um, and I, I, um, uh, I've been told, you know, more than once that, oh, you need to get a smartphone. If you don't get a smartphone soon, then, you know, uh, you know, all the, the, I have some legal troubles, right? And they they are saying, um, you know, if you don't have a smartphone, then the judge is going to rule, rule against you, you know, or not rule in your favor because they're seeing like how irresponsible you are and so, so forth, right? So it's that bad. Like you, if you don't have these apps and all and, and access to the internet and stuff, you can't function in society. Mm-hmm. So that to me, that is total, that is totalitarianism. I agree. Yeah. Hello everyone. This is Artemis. This is the end of the first part of the conversation with Jamie. The second part of the interview will be up next week. Thank you for listening.